We're going to be in Luke chapter 3. And let's open in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to bless your word as it's brought forward and, and guide and lead us to what you would want us to see through all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to be reading chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. One of those very interesting sections because it's a genealogy. And I'm only going to read through this word once, so you all need to remember every name I say, so, because I have trouble reading this just as much as anybody else does. Luke 3, 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Matat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Janus, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Matthias, which was the son of Amos, which was the son of Naum, the son of Isli, the son of Nagi, the son of Mahath, the son of Matthias, the son of Shimei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Johanna, the son of Resha, the son of Zorobel, the son of Shalathiel, the son of Neri, which was the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Gosham, the son of Elmodam, the son of Er, er the son of Jo, the son of Er, the son of Joseph, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Joran, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meliah, the son of Manan, the son of Matthias, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Solomon, the son of Nashom, the son of Abinadab, the son of Aram, the son of Eshron, the son of Pharaoh, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Therah, the son of Nacor, the son of Saruch, the son of Raku, the son of Phalek, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kiana, the son of Ar, Ar the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lemek, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Meleel, the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, the son of Adam, which was the son of God. <laughs> All right. We have a long list of people here, and it's a genealogy, and, and I know that when we first start reading these things, and I remember as a teenager especially, and even in my 20s, I would get to, this person begat so-and-so or was the son of somebody, and I would just trace my finger down to the bottom of the line and say, okay, we're done with that. Uh, as I've studied the Bible more, I get more into this, but we're not going to talk a lot about in, the individuals in this, this line today. We're going to talk about the fact that there's another genealogy, which I am not reading. <laughs> from Matthew 1, <laughs> verses 1 through 16. And if you compare those two genealogies, to uh, compare them together, you'll find out that there's a whole different list of names. And so the people will tell us, well, here is an obvious contradiction to the Bible. Because two genealogies for the life of Jesus are different. Now, they make a big deal out of this. But, you know, it's really not that big a deal. There are actually two, way, two reasons that it would be a be, be explained, and we're, and we're going to go with the one that I believe, and I will just quickly go over the other one because I don't think it's a valid one anyway. But the first thing I want to talk about is 
when we see something that appears to be a contradiction, the very first thing that needs to go into our head is that the Bible is true. All right? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and, and for instruction in righteousness. So the very first thing we have to understand is this word is true. Once we understand that it's true, then we can go and try to find out what the contradiction is that we think we see. All right? But if I go off and I say, well, here's a contradiction, I can't believe it, then what am I doing? I'm saying this Bible is not something I can live off by. And this would be a problem. If the Bible isn't 100% true, I cannot put my trust and faith in the book. Because I would always be trying to decide what is true and what is not true, and I would be making myself God to determine what is true and what's not true. It is God's word, and we need to look at it and say, it is true. When it says something that it make, appears to be a contradiction, I need to find the answer and why there, why there is an apparent contradiction. And I'm, I'm bold enough to tell you, this is one of those contradictions, and I love it when we come across these because they're easily explained. We just covered this one when, we, when they were told to go to Egypt. Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about Mary and Joseph were told to Egypt and then they went to Nazareth and I can't remember which of the other gospels, I think it was Matthew said, when they had accomplished all these things, they went back to Nazareth. Well, all he did was cut out a trip to Egypt before they went to Nazareth. It's really not that big a deal when you think about it because how many of us tell a story and we leave out bits and, you know, because people don't really care. It's like if I told you that I drove here to, to home and back in the same day, and, you know, but in, in, and I didn't, didn't tell you that I stopped off at Smith's on the way there. And then I went to the gas station. All those other points are not necessarily important to me telling you I went home and came back. So this is what we have. And in this one, we have a more interesting into, in place to go because this comes down to a trust issue. Can I trust God's word? And there's lots of people that look at this and automatically say, I can't trust this. So I'm going to tell you both the ways that I think this is answered and the way that I think it's truly answered is us have two genealogies. I could give you my genealogy through my dad's side <laughs> and I can give you a genealogy through my mom's side and they will not match because those two genealogies do not come together anywhere in, in that line. There's no intermarriage in my, in my two lines that I'm aware of. If there is, it's hundreds of years back because I've, I've gone back on both lines for back to the 1700s. There's no linkage. Most people believe that Luke is giving us Mary's line of genealogy. Matthew is giving through Joseph's line. And why would he go through Joseph's line? Because if you remember when we talked Matthew, Matthew was writing to the Jewish people to tell them that their Messiah has come. And so he's showing them that Jesus has the legal claim to the throne, howbeit many generations removed. He had the legal claim to the throne because of him going through. And if you go through Matthew's line, you see uh, Jehoiakim and Hezekiah. and all. You see, you see that he comes literally through the royal line uh, to Joseph. And Joseph, being his stepfather, would give him a legal claim to it. Most people believe that in this case, 
we're looking at Mary's line of descent. Now, Mary's a, a descendant of the tribe of Judah, and she also comes through the royal line. She just doesn't have the direct line of king to king that you would recognize in the story. And people will go, well, how do we know that it's Mary's line? Well, because Joseph, it says right there at the very beginning, when we read there, it says, Jesus himself being to be 30 years old, being as supposed the son of Joseph. As supposed. Luke goes through many times to reveal that Mary was a virgin, that Jesus' birth was virgin born. And we know that the people of Jesus' day actually assumed that Joseph was his father. And we talked about that during Christmas time, that when, Je when Joseph agreed to marry Mary, <laughs> uh, you know, tacitly the, the people's attitude was this must be his daughter because he wouldn't, you know, his, his child, because he would not marry this woman if it wasn't his, his child. So there, there was this rumors going around all the time that, that Joseph was the father. He was raising him as the stepfather. So he raised him up as his son. Uh, and we see this. And the Pharisees even accused Jesus. You know, if you remember the story, when they go, when Jesus was teaching them, they go, well, we know who our father is. You know, uh, implication, you're, you're, you don't know, you know, you don't really know who your father is because your, your mom got pregnant before she was, was married. So, and then he went on to go, you know, before Abraham was, I am. He says, I am, my father is God. So he was able to defend that position. But we look at this and we go, all of this down, it shows that he has a bloodline to be king as well. So this is what the general belief is, is what I believe. He's being shown he has the legal claim through Matthew, and he has a blood claim through his mother, through his natural born mother. So we look at this and say, well, why would all of this go through? Uh, because Mary's line is not the, the main line. She goes through the son Nathan, one of David's sons called Nathan. And, and so he's second or third generation down. So, but it is that point that Jesus is born of the tribe of Judah. And it's interesting when Matthew goes in, he stops at Abraham. Why does he stop at Abraham? Because again, Who's his audience? He's talking to the Jews. Once he gets to Abraham, they know who their fathers are from, you know, from Abraham down, down to Adam. They know, they know who it is. He's talking here to the Greeks. So what is he going back through? He's saying, Luke is speaking to the Greeks, so he's going to say, I'm going to take you to Abraham, and I'm going to take you all the way down beyond Abraham, all the way to God, the Creator. And he says that Adam was the son of God. Now, Adam was not the son of God the same as Jesus. And we want to keep that in mind because, you know, this is the way some people will get out there and try to teach. You know, Jesus, you know, Jesus was a son of God. There are, there are cults and churches that teach that we become God or we become like gods. You know, the thing about us is we never will become God. We're not going to become like God for all, for all practical purposes. We will become more like him as we're sanctified. But our goal is not to become God. 
when we get to heaven, I truly believe that we will not know all things because God is God and we're not. And we will never be God. The only thing I'm looking forward to heaven is I won't forget the things that I learn. It's terrible to forget what you know. And, you know, there's things that I go out and I'm going, God, this is, I used to know this stuff and I'm having to relearn it. But we look here at this long list and Mary's line goes through and there's one name in Mary's line that you would recognize as you go through it. Um, excuse me, not in Mary's, in, in uh, Joseph's list. He was related to Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiachin, who was the second to last king. So Joseph has a direct line to the, the royal line. Now again, if you know anything about royal lines, you start after, after one or two generations, you're already down, you know, 30, 40 people deep, you know, and this is now 400 years, you know, 800 years since the, since the last person he is. So by that time, he's probably like 900th on the list of, of the royal line, but he's still able to be part of the royal line. And you go, well, what's the big deal of all these genealogies anyway? You know, why is it important to see these genealogies? If Jesus is the Messiah, he must be of the royal line of David because he would had to be a son of Jesse. We have recorded in our scriptures these genealogies to show that he is the son of Jesse. There is nobody in all of Israel that can prove their lineage completely to full justification to Jewish standards because in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed all their genealogy records were destroyed. So nobody could ever prove that they are the Messiah anymore because there's no genealogical records to go back. This is why God put the genealogies in these Gospels. So that we could be able to say, here is Jesus' line back to David. And God so wonderfully put it together that we can go down both lines. <laughs> his mother, who was his actual parent, and his stepfather, which would be his legal guardian. And Jesus says, here it is. I am the son of David so that I can have the kingship legally and by birth. So it brings us to this wonderful point that we see all of this stuff come together that, that shows us that God is in charge. And Luke continues. He started out with supposed to be Joseph's father. And just kind of put it in out there, Joseph. And Luke was following the process of the time. You go by the male line, but he's following the female line, which is a very unusual thing. If you know a lot about the Bible, the Bible raises and elevates women, but the culture that it was written in did not raise and elevate women. So it's a very fine line whenever they would say things. Women were there. Women were important. And women were always important even back then. You know, we have Proverbs 31, the, the, the virtuous woman one, and you read about her, she's doing all the work in the house and bringing in the funds, and the man just sits at the gate. Sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> uh, but, you know, this is what's going on. And all through Jesus' ministry, there were women that ministered. There were women that did things. It was women that first saw him resurrected. And you've got to think, you know, if, if, this was a, if that was a false story, if they were just trying to create a story, it would not have been women who saw the resurrection. Why? 
We've talked about this several times because women could not even testify in court. If you were the eyewitness in, to a crime as a woman, you could not testify in court as to the person's guilt in that day. And the Jews writing, uh, the, the disciples writing that the, the women were the first ones to see Jesus ro raised from the dead, if they were telling lies, that would not have been what they would have said. This is one of the things we look at, the little details in the Bible that help us understand how correct it is. The Bible is not something that gives us a point by point on every single thing in our life, but its principles teach us how to live, how to get by. It gives us a science that is so complete that we can be able to understand this is what happened. You know, and this takes us into, and we're not going to get into it today, but the whole controversy between evolution and creationism. All right? And we've said this over and over again. Neither one of those, those positions can be proved by science because they're both philosophical arguments. You cannot see and test what happened 6,000 years ago at creation. Or 60 million years or trillion years, whatever science is currently saying. We can't go back and see what happened at that point in time. So it's all philosophical. When somebody tries to say that evolution is science, they're lying. It is not science, it's philosophy. Because you cannot put it in a test tube and test it. You cannot put it together and run a test on it. Science has been trying real hard to do with the most important thing that evolution needs. Create life out of nothing. They've been trying hard. They can make amino acids, but they can't make life out of nothing. And Pasteur proved that life does not spontaneously generate. Unless you're an evolutionist, and it happened at least one time in, in history. And it is so funny. So how do they get around it? There's now this wonderful idea, and I don't know if I've shared it on a Sunday morning, but I was in biology class one time, and the professor spent, he was spending 20 minutes telling us about how aliens came to this world and planted life and, and all of this down, and I'm waiting for him to get to the punchline of the joke. And after 20 minutes, I realized that, that idiot actually believed that this started with aliens coming to this world, but all he's done is saying, where, where did life start from anyway? This is the new idea that we're planted here by aliens and of course wherever they were had to be planted by aliens, whichever, wherever they were had to be planted by aliens, wherever they were had to be planted by aliens. All you're doing is saying, well, somewhere, somewhere, someplace, there must have been a planet where life spontaneously generates. Even though it doesn't match the laws of the laws that we know, there might be a planet out there where the laws that we know don't apply. Well, I can't argue that. But it's also not science. It's called science fiction. Maybe someplace, somewhere, you know, and this is the problem that we have when we talk to people who don't want to believe in God. They come up with the strangest fiction stories to make what they believe sound good. And all they do is push it off to someplace else, someplace else, someplace else. And this is why we need to look at what God says. He says he created the world. He says that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now we know that that's an impossibility without God. We also know that life is impossible without God. And there's a lot more about 
all of how life started and how it is in viol you know, all, all of evolution is in violation of laws of science. It's, a, it's a quite an interesting study. I love science with a great passion, but I love true science. I don't like the fictions that are taught by most colleges and, and, and high schools. And most of my teachers did not like me because I argued with them about it and I would give them scientific proofs that what they were saying was a lie. And that most of what they wrote in their books on the evolution sections were lies. Proven in scientific journals. And still taught to this day in school. It's a crazy world that we live in. But when you do not want to accept truth, any lie works. And the problem is if you say a lie long enough, loud enough, often enough, people start to believe it. And that is the problem in our day and age. We have a media that lies to us constantly. We have people, scientists that lie to us constantly. And they expect us to believe it just because they keep repeating the same lies. The only difference is when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. It is funny to know the truth and be able to see right through a lie. You know, uh, if you've ever watched a magician, now even, you know, you watch a magician and when you know their trick, it's sometimes so funny to watch a magician, you know, do a trick that you know how, to, how it's done. And you go, oh, there it is. There, there's what, there, 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 there was the switch. There is what they did. Uh, I was watching a magician one time and I had a seat in a position I wasn't supposed to be in. He was doing the trick for somebody else and I caught, I caught what he did. Now I kept a secret and I will keep a secret because those tricks are not cheap. Those, cheap, those, those, those tricks cost quite a bit of money to purchase and learn. But once I saw it, it's like, wow, it was so simple. It was pretty amazing. It was a good trick. It was an amazing trick when I first saw it. But now that I know how it's done, it's not so amazing. We know the truth. We know the truth when we're in the scriptures. And the truth will set us free. This world is only about 6,000 years old. It's real simple. God created it. And it, you know, one of the things that we look at in, in, on all of this is Mount St. Helens changed most of geology's belief systems because it did what, in a matter of hours, what they said would take millions of years. And it happened in hours. And we know exactly when it happened. And we say, well, this, this is what you said, you know, this, the same format in the Grand Canyon you said took millions of years, but here it is. This format that over here said you took, said took millions of years, here it is, right in Mount St. Helens. It is wonderful that God will produce truth for us when we open our eyes and just say that he is true. Our good news is this book is true. I can put my full trust in this book. Now, having said that, it also makes it very hard because when there's something I don't like that God says, I still have to say, God, you're true. God, you just smacked me upside the head and said I had to change my ways. Uh, I need to change. Now, I might fight that. I might argue with it. But if it's in God's word, I need to accept that what he says is true because everything is true. Now, real quickly, I just want to say the second thing that some people say and a lot of the commentaries say, and I disagree with it, is that it shows two lines both of Joseph. 
One saying his legal line where he is a king and the other one saying that it, I do not know how they justify it. But I do want you to be aware that there are people that say they're both Joseph's line even though they have all different names. And some of them they say just because people have two names and, and stuff. And they'll try to justify it because they'll find a couple in there where they could be... I don't buy it. But I'm going to tell you, just in case somebody ever, if you hear that, that it's two lines of Joseph. One, again, a bloodline where he goes straight down through it, and then the legal legal line. I don't buy that. Uh, but I want you to be aware of it. If you open up a commentary, you might find a lot of commentaries saying that they're both Joseph's line. Uh, this has been in debate for a long time. Uh, we have several people from the first century that all, all said the same thing. It's Joseph's line and Mary's line. They were close enough to the disciples that I think they knew what they were talking about. Most of the other commentaries were written in the 16, 17, 1800s. They're far enough away that I don't think they know what they're talking about. They were just struggling. The writers of the commentaries do the same thing we do. They try to figure out answers. And I've shared this many times, you know, I, when I teach the class on how to study the Bible, I say the very first most important thing when studying the Bible is prayer and listening to the Holy Spirit. Once you've done that, then God will share, you, share with you the right answers. If you're not listening to God, do not ever just open your Bible, read a section, and go straight to commentaries. Because commentaries are man's opinions. And I want everybody to learn to study. Listen to God. Be good Bereans. Study the Word. Now, if you want to go through and you have a whole bunch of people that prove that jo these are both Joseph's lines, I'm not going to argue with you. As long as you know why you believe what you believe, that is what matters. But it has to match up to the scriptures. I just don't buy that they're both the line of Joseph. I cannot, I cannot fathom how they do it. I've tried to read their arguments and none of them make any sense to me. So I'm going to stick with one's the line of Joseph and one's the line of Mary. Because that makes sense to me, because every one of us have two lines. Now, if I tell you that, you know, I am Ralph Wells III, so I know two generations back from my, who, who my father and my grandfather are. And then I know back further. Now, there is no Ralph, Ralph uh, Wells the, on my mother's side. You know, we are Johnsons on that side. <laughs> All right. And then we go through a whole bunch of other names as we go further down. Uh, so we look at this and say, we all know how easy it is to have two, two lines of genealogy. So I'm going to stick with this. This is what it is. But we look at this. All of this is designed so that we can trust God's word. He points out this is, the, this is what we're looking at. And I've told you all, there's about four or five places where people say these are contradictions. As we point them out, I'm going to be glad to show you. These are the contradictions people will point out. And I'm also going to tell you, here's the answer to the apparent contradiction. In our Second Kings and, and Chronicles, we're going to come to an apparent contradiction soon. Again, in, in those studies. And we'll explain why it's not a problem and how easy it is to figure out. But we always want to be able to say, if I start with the fact that the Bible is true then I don't have to try to figure out how it matches with the rest of the world. Why did we get some really silly decisions in, the 18, in 1850? Who, does anybody remember what happened in 1850? Probably not. But in 1850, Darwin wrote a little book, The Descent of Man, 
to try to put forth evolution. And theologians decided, well, if science is saying that we evolved, then we have to figure out how to get more than 6,000 years into the Bible. And they did somersaults and twisted and, and became pretzels to try to figure out where, the, where in the Bible they could stick more than, than 6,000 years. And they came up with an idea of a gap theory. That you read Genesis 1-1, and then you read Genesis 1-2, and between those two verses is millions and billions of years. Now, I don't know how they came up with that, and they've got a whole other bunch of verses that they take out of context to, to plug in there. But do you understand that when you start taking away from the fact that the Bible is true, then you have to start trying to figure out how false information fits into the Bible. Do not put yourself in that place where you're trying to figure out how false information fits into the Bible. Stand with truth. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Do not follow into falsehood. Because once you start down the path of falsehood, and once you start down in the path that the Bible does not say what it says, you're in trouble because you can make the Bible say just about anything if you want to twist it around and pull verses out of context. You know, uh, old joke that many of you probably heard, man's trying to figure out how to live his life, so he, his way of studying the Bible is just to pop open the Bible, put his finger down on a, on a verse, and, and, and that's his verse for that day. So he opens up his Bible, and he pushes his fingers down, and he says, and I, Judas went out and hung himself. <laughs> he goes, well, that can't be my verse for the day. So he opens up his Bible, puts it down on finger down on it, and, he, and it goes, whatsoever you do, go do quickly. <laughs> you know, so what am I saying? Don't take the verses out of context because you can really make yourself come up with some really crazy things out of the Bible. When Just because somebody quotes Bible verses, do not just assume that they are even a good Bible student. Most of you know that when you come to me and you ask me a Bible question, you know the very first thing I will go do, I will grab the Bible, and I will read about 10 verses ahead of it, and 10 verses afterwards. And when I read those verses, most of the time, we look, I look at the person and go, oh, that makes sense now. When we read them in context, it almost always will make sense. Never just pick and choose verses out of the Bible. And if you're listening to a teacher and all they're doing is pulling a verse here, pulling a verse here, pulling a verse here, be very cautious. Write those verses down. Go back and see, does this verse actually match up and say what it says? Now, we see even in the Bible that they pull a verse out to make a point, and it doesn't really, in context, make the point that they're trying to say either sometimes. You know, so, yes, it may mean what, it, what, what you think it means, but it also has to be understood in context. So be very careful as we're studying the Bible. Be very careful as we're looking at the scriptures. We can trust his word. How do we know that we're going to heaven when we're saved? The Bible tells us so. Ask and you shall receive. You know, it's very important. It tells us that we're all lost. You know, it is wonderful when you're witnessing to somebody and it says, well, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. You can with great confidence tell them you aren't. You're not judging them. You're just telling them, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. 
Nobody is good enough to go to heaven. So if anybody is trying to get to heaven on their good works, they're in trouble. It's not going to happen. It only comes down to the fact that God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Without the death of Christ, we do not go to heaven. Because of his death, we repent from our sins and we turn to him and we call him Lord and Master. He comes into our life to rule within us. It's so simple. It is so simple. If you do any study in any other religion out there, Christianity is so different because Christianity is a relationship with the God of the universe who loves us. Every other religion out there is do more good than bad and you might please the God who doesn't like you in the first place. And it really is that. They all have a God who doesn't like you. How much good do you have to do to get somebody to like you who doesn't like you to begin with? You know, and knowing that you do bad that's going to make be points against you. So now I've got to do more good than bad, and I've got to do enough good to please the God who doesn't like me. And if you don't believe me, study these other religions, and I don't even recommend that you do that. And if you do that, and if you do do that, whatever time you spend in the other and the other religions, books and material, spend an equal or more time in God's Word to clean your mind. One of, the, one of the greatest studiers of the cult went crazy by the end of his life because he, would not, he was spending more time in the books of the cults than he was in the Bible. And he went crazy. And he taught some really stupid things by the end of his lifetime because he was so much into destroying, trying to destroy the cults and reading their materials. I don't have to read anything about other religions. Why? I have the truth. I have the truth. Do you know how they teach treasury officers to be able to identify counterfeit bills? They do not do a long study on all the things that can be wrong with, with the counterfeit. All they do is make them spend months doing nothing but handling and looking at real bills. And then their final test is that there'll be a counterfeit bill that comes through and they're supposed to find it. And you know, if you truly understand the real, the counterfeit stands out with stark contrast. When I hear somebody not speak the truth, and it's supposed to be a Christian teacher, alarm bells go off in my head and go, something is not right. I don't even have to know exactly what's right. I was listening to a pastor, and I generally liked that pastor, and I was just listening to him in the background, and all of a sudden he said something, and alarm bells went off in my head, and I started paying attention. I'm going, I did not know he believed something this bad. You know, and so what do we want to do? If you really want to understand the lie, don't care about the lie. Study the truth. If you know the truth, the lie will stand out and will not be deceived. It is so easy to stand up. Just know the truth and accept the truth. And then you can go out and figure out how to defend the truth if you want to. Because it is important for us to be able to do that. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, help us to know your truth. Study your truth and be stronger and stronger in your truth. Guide and lead us in all that we do. 
Help us to know that your word is true and that we can trust it completely and that you are never going to lie to us because you are the God of truth. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.